Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. You join me on a day when humanity faces a common enemy. The COVID virus will change the way that we live forever. As of today, it changes the way that we greet each other. It changes the way that we interact with one another. It changes the way that our families live and that our communities function. In that context, my guest on the podcast is Dr. Celine Gounder, an American medical doctor and medical journalist who specializes in infectious diseases and global health. She was educated at Princeton University, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and University of Washington School of Medicine. In 2017, because of her contribution to medicine and public health, Gounder was named one of People Magazine's 25 Women Changing the World. I'm very pleased to share this podcast with Celine Gounder. Welcome to the show, Celine. We're delighted to be speaking with you again today in very difficult circumstances. Well, thank you for having me. I want to start by summarizing the picture as you see it, particularly in the United States, where we, we read a lot about this in our press and we obviously see it on social media. But what is going on in America at the moment? I think, unfortunately, in the U.S., we're still dealing with a divide. It's a divide between the people who have seen this firsthand, people yeah. who are seeing this in their communities, mm. and people who haven't. And, and I think, sadly, um, people who haven't seen this concretely don't really believe it's real, or at least don't believe the threat is real. And that makes it very difficult to convince people to take some of the measures necessary to control this. Sure. What kind of um, response are you seeing? And, and where is it the most, where are you most heartened by what you've, um, you've observed? Well, there are a couple of things that I have found really um, encouraging. Um, you know, I think the commitment of healthcare workers to do their jobs, you know, their sense of duty, their calling, you know, it's something that we've seen, you know, I'm in New York City, which is now ground zero really for the, for the pandemic worldwide. But to see how people have really shown their commitment, we haven't seen this in New York really since 9-11. And you know, I, I do think New Yorkers have a very strong sense of place and love for our city and, and so really do throw themselves in um, when something like this happens. So many people have reached out um, once they heard the difficulties we were having with personal protective equipment. Yeah. So that's the masks, the gowns, the, uh, you know, and so on, um, that we are running low on that we've run out of in some cases, the number of people who've reached out and, and stepped up, it may just be a friend who had a handful in their garage that they expressed mailed to me. And in other cases, it's these big corporations or industrial outfits that are trying to donate to our hospital system. So that's really been amazing to see people, um, step up and, and contribute. In terms of how um, I think this is going to change culture, I think there's sort of two pieces to that as well. I think you have, um, there's the culture more more broadly, and then there's the culture of medicine. I think where this is going to have a real impact on the culture more broadly is when we come on that, you know, when we come out the other side of this, you know, some, some things like, will we shake hands? I don't know that I will want to go back to shaking hands, frankly, and I don't know that that was ever a good habit. I think there's something beautiful about the bow, about namaste. And so I, I hope that, you know, we do consider some of those practices. I, I also think, you know, in a lot of Asian countries, 
They wear masks. Now, some of that is for pollution, but some of that is for infection, especially during cold and cough season. And I think, you know, will we start to see people wearing masks in the winter just as a matter of course? I think that would be a good cultural shift. And it's less that you're protecting yourself. It's more that if you're incubating something or you yourself are infectious, if everybody were to wear a mask under those circumstances, you would be doing your part to protect everyone else. When it comes to the culture of medicine, I think this kind of crisis brings people together. And, you know, it's sort of like going back to your early years of training when you're working these really long hours with people and going through some of these experiences for the first time. It sort of harkens back to that. And I do think there's a certain camaraderie that that comes from this. And, um, and so I think that may just sort of strengthen the culture of, of medicine in, in some places. I, I think my one concern is where we've had administrators downplaying the risks of not having adequate personal protective equipment. I think that represents a real breach of trust. And I'm not sure that that can be recovered. Mm. And I think it would be much better just to acknowledge the true risks, to be honest about them, because I think for the most part, um, healthcare workers will still do their jobs. They just want to feel like they're being told the truth, that people are being transparent with them. And I think the vast majority will still feel such a strong sense of duty that they're still going to show up to work no matter what. And they, I think they just want to feel like they have some control over making that choice. Mm. In in Australia, it's quite interesting. I, mean, I, spend, uh, I live quite close to a place called Fitzroy Gardens. It's an enormous park in the middle of the city. And I certainly uh, echo what you're saying. People are being much kinder to one another. So when you pass somebody who's walking on their own, you say good morning to that stranger because you may be the only person who actually physically speaks to that person as they head back to their home or their flats or, or wherever they happen to be going. Because uh, mo most people are now not even, uh, most people are working from home, which is another change, I guess, in our social fabric that this working from home, working from your kitchen table as opposed to sitting at a desk, that is new and different. People are spending more time with their families. People are spending more time online, which, I mean, we were spending a lot of time online anyway, but we're spending far more time online. We're connecting more with our families who are abroad. So we're making a conscious effort to uh, contact, you know, grandma who happens to live in that other place where she's likely to be on her own and you want her to be on her own um, whilst this pandemic unfolds. For us in clinical practice, the other big change in primary care is the use of telemedicine. Telemedicine is a new uh, and much bigger event here than it has been for years. And, you know, the idea of practicing medicine without actually examining the patient, being in the same room as a patient, that's something quite new and different. Are you noticing any of that in the place, in the place where you are? Well, I think one thing that's challenging in the U.S. is we have so many regulations that make some of that difficult, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately. And, and some of the 
challenge is the U.S., we have a, a federalist um, government, which means that each state has their own laws, their own approach to things, which has also been a major impediment in addressing the pandemic because you can't really go top down. Every single state and local health department ha- is going to do their thing, mm. maybe with guidance from the federal government, but not. Um, it's not mandated in that way. But unfortunately, that creates other obstacles for telemedicine. Each physician has to be licensed in every state in which they practice. And so if you want to be essentially providing services across the country, you need to be licensed in each of those states. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a small a small thing. Um, now, that said, um, we are seeing a scale up of telemedicine services in this moment. The um, university where I uh, am on faculty, New York University School of Medicine, they are definitely moving as much uh, outpatient care to the telemedicine setting, um, you know, to reduce risk of transmission. And, and honestly, I think patients often prefer that. If you just need a quick blood pressure check and adjustment of your medications, you don't need to come in to the hospital for that. Absolutely, you, you don't. And uh, and that's to be uh, commended. But on the other hand, if you've got an acute illness, whether it's a, a d- abdominal pain or you know, a discomfort in your shoulder or whatever, it does help that you're examining the patient. That's going, that's going to be very challenging, I guess. And of course, in those instances, telemedicine doesn't work and we bring patients in to, to, uh, face to face. And of course, that's the challenge. Uh, you've talked a little bit about the shortage of PPE. And of course, we've experienced that here in, in Australia ourselves. And many of my colleagues are very nervous, uh, those, particularly those in primary care, about being in an environment where they are at high risk, many of them being over 50. How do you think this will unfold as time goes by? Because we've still got some way to run in this pandemic. Yeah, I think a key development is going to be serologic testing. So mm-hmm. testing for antibodies, not just testing for active disease, which is what we're currently doing with what we call uh, nucleic acid testing. So basically, you're you're looking for the gen- uh, the genome of the virus, and once we have antibody testing, you can then say. Not only, you know, do you not necessarily have symptoms or disease right now, but we'll be in a position to say, well, maybe you were infected, you know, a couple months ago, you didn't even know it, but you're immune now. And so to be able to differentiate who's immune and who's not is far more powerful than saying, well, you're younger or you don't have any known chronic medical conditions, so you're probably going to be okay. You know, we are definitely seeing... Uh, I don't know what your experience has been in Australia, but at least in the U.S., we are definitely seeing younger people end up in the intensive care unit on on ventilators. And some of that may be, you know, we do have higher rates of obesity in the United States. That does seem to be a risk factor from what I'm observing. They may perhaps have underlying high blood pressure or diabetes that just hasn't been diagnosed because they're a young person who hasn't really had much contact with the healthcare system. But, you know, the other thing is, even if somebody is not at high risk for severe disease themselves, if they're not immune, they are contributing to chains of transmission. And so I really think approaching it in terms of immune versus not immune is much um, makes much more sense from a public health perspective and, and controlling this um, than saying, well, you're at high risk for rather than saying you're at high risk for severe disease or not. How far do you think we are from having serological testing? So there are a number of antibody tests, serological tests that have been submitted to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for review. So I think we're actually pretty close. 
And they're not having to get the full FDA approval. They're getting um, emergency use authorization, what we call EUA in the United States. So I think once we have, you know, a couple of those on board, you know, then the next challenge is going to be just volume and, uh, you know, availability and scale up, which is the problem we've had with the other tests, the nucleic acid um, diagnostic tests. But, you know, I think once you have those tests available, if we can scale them up broadly, I think that could make a really huge difference in how we approach control of of the pandemic. I think what you are, in answer to your question, we are seeing young younger people um, becoming quite ill with this COVID virus. But in addition to that, we're finding that young people are the ones who are breaking the social distancing rules. So young people on beaches, uh, construction workers who tend to be younger people not following the social distancing guidelines and so on. Do you think that that's going to be an interesting uh, observation that we're going to find younger people almost becoming vectors for this um, and th- that we should be targeting specifically younger people for social distancing messages? I think that's a great question. I think what we have observed is that that age group is by far the most social and in a sense networked, networked socially, but also networked in terms of disease transmission. And so it is a population, a group that we need to be targeting. I do think we need to step back and at least in the U.S. think a little bit about the intergenerational social contract, so to speak. And so you have baby boomers in the U.S. Um, who are saying to the millennials, you know, it's sort of where, where the generational fault lines seem to lie, saying, you know, you scolding them, really, saying that they need to stay home, that, you, you know, these younger folks are killing the older folks by being irresponsible in their behaviors. But, you know, I think we need to step back and say, well, what about issues like climate change? What about all of the millennials who cannot pay back their student loans, who much less buy a home, you know, and so there needs to be some recognition that just because climate change isn't going to kill a millennial tomorrow, these are very much on the same order of magnitude and complexity as to problems that need to be solved that require really social community solutions, not individual solutions. Mm. You hit on a a very important point there, which is really about the economic impact of all of this and the concern that people have for their livelihoods, their ability to pay back their mortgages, uh, their jobs, uh, the survival of their businesses, whatever it happens to be. And there's the big debate, isn't there, uh, in the US in particular, the economy versus the, the what's going to happen to people if we don't get this disease under control. What's your take on on that conversation? Well, you know, the way I see it is the longer we let this pandemic go on, the greater the economic damage is going to be. Mm. And to think that you can just restart the economy and turn a blind eye to what's happening um, in terms of health systems and, and public health more broadly, I, I just don't think is going to work. So I think if you really want to get people back to work and, and restart the economy, the approach should be to be as aggressive as possible with shutting down transmission. And you know, a lot of people have been asking me, well, when can we lift these social distance so, uh, social distancing measures? So a couple things. One, we want to see number of new infections and cases and deaths uh, peak and then decrease. Ideally, we would like to get to the point where 
you don't have generalized community transmission anymore where we can actually trace, okay, person A infected person B and C, person C infected person D and E, where you can literally map out those chains. Right now, we can't do that. And also have some of the testing I described. So to me, that would be phase two. But we, we need to get to the point where you know, doing the contact tracing and testing is feasible. And we have to do much more in the way of suppression before we can get to that point. Unfortunately, we missed the window in terms of just starting off with that, which is, you know, the South Korean approach was to start off with contact tracing and, and testing the same thing in Singapore. But we let this get out of, you know, we, we let this spread to such a degree that that wasn't feasible as your first line intervention anymore. I mean, this is primary care 101 in the sense that when it comes to behavior change, we, we really need to target people who are going to, with messages that they're going to hear. And, and the, the appalling thing is that the approval rates of politicians who are talking about lifting the social distancing um, bans are going through the ceiling at a time when we really need them to, we need the politicians to hear loud and clear that the people's choice is that they we we do it in the way that you're describing get aggressive with the social distancing to get aggressive with our approach to how we control this thing before it gets uh, it gets on top of us what do you think we should be doing right now to counter that move and get people understanding the message because I, I don't think that they are gosh sadly i think sometimes people just need to see it for themselves mm. and you know, we have film crews from CNN, for example, um, that have gone to Elmhurst Hospital, the worst hit hospital in New York City, and have shown images of that on the news. And, you know, if that doesn't convince somebody, if seeing a refrigerator truck slash mortuary parked outside the hospital doesn't convince you that this is real, I think some people just need to be affected on, on a personal level. And I think the desire to believe what's convenient is very strong, you know, and, and it's convenient to not to believe this is true, especially as people are looking at their 401ks, which in the U.S. is, um, you know, how we re uh, invest for put money away for retirement. Um, they're seeing that drop precipitously as the stark stock market is suffering. They are worried that they might lose their job. They're worried, you know, about any number of um, economic and financial hardships. And mm it's convenient to say, I don't believe that, you know, it becomes much harder than if you acknowledge it's real, because then what do you do? It's very sad, isn't it, that we have to see people on ventilators and in mortuaries before we believe that this thing is happening. And there's no question that it's happening. We see it. Um, we see the cases. It, it, I was just walking through our local hospital today and everything's shut down and wards are uh, you know, there's a high exclusion of visitors, obviously, to to the hospital. Uh, and it came home to me very starkly because I happened to need to go there for a particular purpose. But until I did, I never realized how how concerned people are uh, at the co-face, those who are facing the infection, because we've had positive cases here as well uh, locally. But if it's if that was, I was thinking to myself, this is how you feel, how must it feel for somebody who isn't? who hasn't seen this, who thinks it's just a cold. And if I get it, I'm a young person, I'm just going to get a cold. I'm not going to get a serious infection. It's how do we make that real without causing mass panic about, um, about what's, what's going to happen to us all? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, how do you walk that fine line of um, not being panic inducing? You know, I I think you just have to really focus on the science and um, on the facts. And I think, unfortunately, at least in our country, many of our politicians are very emotionally driven. And, you know, we need to step back and, and be, you know, dispassionate in some of these things. And I think, unfortunately, that runs counter to how the media often does, you know, its reporting. It, it very much appeals to emotion. Um, and so how do we learn to tell compelling science stories while being less emotional? I, I think that's really hard. I guess if you were looking back, you'd say, uh, if I wanted to, to do this, I wouldn't start from here, where we don't, we're not geared up. We've never been geared up properly to sell the message in a way that Joe Public will understand, I guess, in terms of the science. Because what sells newspapers isn't numbers. What sells, sells newspapers are compelling stories. Maybe the time has come for us to think about telling the story in a way that makes a millennial think twice about, you know, going to that party at somebody's home uh, and, and somehow trying to escape the social distancing rules. No, I think I think that's right. And I think going back to that sort of um, social contract between generations, I think if the baby boomer generation, for example, were to reach out, not with scolding, but mm. to say, okay, I get your concerns now. Mm. I understand how this is actually real for you. I think that point of empathy would be the way to get some of that conversation started. Mm perhaps starting with a conversation that says, if we don't get on top of this, the future is going to look even bleaker. Right. And, and whether, bleaker. whether that's coronavirus or climate change, you know, which are, are, one is more pressing for one generation, one is more pressing for the other generation, but you could make that statement about either of those. Sure. Right. So. So what would you like to say to the Australian audience who will be listening to you uh, today in terms of where this is all going to go and how you feel that we all need to respond. Well, I, w- I would just say, I hope you don't make our mistakes. There, there really is no need for these mistakes to be made over and over again. Mm. We should have learned from the experience in China. You know, obviously they were the first to, to be dealing with this. Um, so of course there's going to be a learning curve, but why do we have to replicate that learning curve over and over? I think that's really sad because it means many people are dying needlessly. And something positive, what would you like to say that uh, it heartens you in terms of the world's response to all of this? You know, I think the way in which scientists and doctors across different countries have reached out to one another to show support, to share information, to share science uh, their experiences with patients, just troubleshooting through problems um, and figuring out, for example, in Spain, um, they're using snorkeling masks as, as you know, personal protective equipment and being very, you know, I, I think that ingenuity and the sharing of that is, is really, um, that's, that's really neat to see. One thing's for sure, the world will never be the same again. And who would have thought as we ushered in 2020 that this is the conversation we would be having today? Yeah, I, I had mixed feelings about 2020, but this is working out, turning out to be a, a much worse 2020 than I had ever envisioned. 
On that note, Celine Gander, thank you so much for offering us your time. I know that you're an extraordinarily busy lady and uh, for you to share your experiences with us is another mark of how the world is changing and how generous we are even during this crisis. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I think this is the moment in which we need to be most generous. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at the Journal of Health Design dot com.